Up next, we have the latest edition of Civic Conversations, a monthly podcast from the League of Women Voters of Bloomington and Monroe County. In today's show, host Jim Allison speaks with James Madison, author of the Ku Klux Klan in the Heartland and history professor at Indiana University. Host Jim Allison has more. This is Civic Conversations, a podcast collaboration between the League of Women Voters, Bloomington, Monroe County, and WFHB. And I'm Jim Allison, your host. Becky Hale is our producer. We're very pleased uh, to say that you can find Civic Conversations every month on WFHB at 93.1 and 98.1 FM. Today, we welcome James Madison, author of The Ku Klux Klan in the Heartland, who is Emeritus Professor, Department of History, Indiana University. Jim, thanks for being here today. Delighted. Thank you, Jim. Now, Professor Madison, before we start talking about your book, it's hard as the Dickens to write a book. Why do you keep doing it? <laughs> well, before I answer that, let me just give a shout out to the League of Women Voters. Uh, formed at about the same time the Ku Klux Klan was in an ironic kind of way, but an organization that sure does a heck of a lot of good, important work compared to most of the works that the Klan did. Well, why do I write books? Well, I guess, um, I guess I'm kind of a, a history nerd and I can't get over it. I've been doing this for 50 years or so. More seriously, uh, I enjoy it. I don't have too many other hobbies or sins. Uh, and I guess even more seriously, um, I see, I see as I age, especially the connections between past and present which I think are one of the fundamental essentials of citizenship and democracy. Understood. Uh, why don't you tell us about the research that you did for your book on the Klan? And while you're at it, why don't you tell us what your biggest surprise was there in your research? Okay, well, um, I could talk about the research for a long time. I spent three years focused on this book and lots of time before that thinking about the subject. Uh, historians deal in primary sources. There are gold. That is the, the actual voices, the documents, the records of the people of the time. So I spent lots and lots of time reading, for example, the weekly newspaper of the Ku Klux Klan published in Indianapolis. Lots of time reading letters and other documents. That is the essential part of research for a scholar, for a historian. We don't, we don't deal in, in, in opinion or myth, though those are fascinating. Uh, so that was that was really the basis of my research. And I'm blessed that we have great sources in Indiana for the Klan, great libraries. The Indiana Historical Society Library was the principal one for me, but many others as well. And then finally, I guess, thanks to good librarians and other people, we have we have digitization of these collections of newspapers documents, including the Indianapolis Fiery Cross. Anyone can go out and read it anytime on your on your desktop. Uh, so the, the primary sources are really the basic part of my research. Uh, I read most of the stuff by other scholars about the Klan, but that's 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 the important thing. As to the surprise, well, there were there were several surprises, Jim. One was uh, I came after three years immersed in this to actually take the people who joined the Klan seriously. I think they had genuine beliefs in what they were doing, as shocking as as that is today. I also was surprised by the extent and depth of their power. The Klan was very powerful in Indiana. 
and it was powerful for many reasons because lots of white native-born Protestant Hoosiers believed in their ideals and their purpose and their mission, but also because the Klan, they were not a bunch of, of kooks, of outliers. They were very sophisticated in building an organization, in building social and religious and cultural power, and in building political power. So those, those are the things that, that really impressed me most as I worked on this book. And then again, the connections between past and present. The, the past never really repeats itself, but as someone said, it does sort of rhyme. And um, uh, lots of readers of this book have told me or asked questions about the connections between past and present. And I do in the last chapter get down to those connections. I write about Governor Mike Pence. I write about the, uh, the events in Charlottesville, Virginia in 2017 and related events that do have connections to the Klan in the 1920s. Okay, I was about to ask you to describe the earliest Klan members. You've done a little bit of that already. We have a better idea of what they were like, I think, from what you've just said. So let's let's dig in a little more detail into 20th century Indiana. And I'm going to ask you to talk, of course, about Grand Dragon D.C. Stevenson and his downfall. Yeah. What can you say? Tell well, us about him. Sure. Stevenson is probably the, the most, almost certainly, the most well-known Klan member, Klan leader in Indiana, and really in America in the 1920s. He had a national reputation. He was very talented, very charismatic, very, very smart at building this organization from the, grass, from the grassroots all the way to the state capital and to the nation's capital. But Stevenson, Stevenson was also one of the most evil men who ever walked the soil of Indiana. And he was eventually caught and convicted for only part of his crimes, convicted and sent to jail for the rape and murder of a young woman named Madge Oberholzer. It's a very important story, full of all sorts of meaning. However, the spotlight on Stevenson and his crimes obscures and puts in the shadows the really important stories, far more important, I believe, and I argue, than the story of Stevenson and his leadership, the stories of ordinary Hoosiers. Good Hoosiers, they thought of themselves as good Hoosiers who joined this organization, which we now think of as a hate group. I'm not sure that's accurate or fair even. Uh, but their, those people, their minds, their, their actions, values, beliefs, that's where the real story is, I believe. Okay, I was here in Bloomington in the 1960s when the Klan was involved in some famous activities. What can you tell us about the Klan in Bloomington in the 1960s and today for that matter? I was here too, Jim, and uh, you may remember as I do vividly the, the tragedy of the bombing of the black market on Kirkwood in I do. Christmas Eve, 1969. I do. By Klan members. And it was a deep shock to all of us, especially at the university, because this was a way in which African-American students were really moving forward to express their political and cultural values and views at a time where that was very controversial, even in universities. And here these idiots come along and firebomb it. Maybe the good news there in part is that that is now, as many people know, uh, People's Park, thank goodness. Mm -hmm. And there's a official state historical marker there. So walk by that beautiful spot 
and read that marker and understand what happened in good old Bloomington, Indiana, when the Klan came. They claim it can't it came at other times, of course. By this time, however, one very serious point is that for the 1960s and after, the Klan that came back in Indiana was a little tiny remnant of what it was in the 1960s. And these weren't good people. These weren't normal mainstream Hoosiers. These were, frankly, mostly whack jobs. They were, they were absurd, uh, driven, above all, by white racism, unlike the Klan of the 1920s, which had other more important issues, actually. So, yeah, it, it came back. And, you know, the Klan is still around today. There are remnants of it. They pop up every once in a while. Sure. Okay, let me ask you, how does the Heartland Klan differ, if it does differ, from the Deep South Klan? Well, the Klan in the South, from the first Klan after the Civil War down to the present, has been, has been driven mostly by white supremacy and by fear and hatred of African Americans. Uh, that's not true of the Klan in Indiana in the 1920s. The biggest enemy by far of the Indiana Klan in the 1920s were Catholics. That's hard to understand, and we don't have time for me to explain it. You have to take my word for it or read the book. But anti-Catholicism was deep in Protestant America in the 1920s, and that drove the Klan. There was anti-Semitism. There was anti-Black, of course, but it was anti-Catholicism and anti-immigration, actually, that really drove the Klan in Indiana in the 20s. And they didn't exactly invent that, did they? <laughs> they didn't invent that. Boy, that was invented long ago, that anti-Catholic stuff. And it came yeah. over in the ships from the, with the first settlers. They brought yeah. those first, those first uh, Euro-Americans brought all sorts of good things with them and then all sorts of other kinds of things with that, them. Didn't they, though? Yeah. Well, do you think the Klan in its heyday exemplified what we call today identity politics, which is, I guess, yeah, in some thing. ways, we didn't okay. call it that in the 20s, but in some ways, it certainly was a kind of tribal group. It was, it was, and this is the way I try to explain it in the book, it was really us and them, we, the good people, mm -hmm. us, them, all those who are not like us. And for the Klan, they worked very hard to market that idea, and they did it brilliantly by this label of 100% American. They used it all the time. We are 100% Americans because we are white, native-born, and Protestant. 100%, and you are not. And you never will be, most of you, you Catholics, you immigrants, you Jews, you African-Americans. Okay, so does it have a... I would, it have I would a, submit that that's one of the most dangerous ideas in all of American history. Okay, does it have a close equivalent today, would you say? Oh, yeah, absolutely. It's all around us today. Uh, not expressed exactly in the same words. Sometimes it's the same words. But but let's be blunt here. The former president, the former guy, uh, now hiding out in Mar-a-Lago, was full of us and them kind of talk, full of 100% American kind of talk. And apparently there are millions of Americans today who sadly believe that, that some of us are better than others of us. And that it's on the basis of take your pick, but often on the basis of race, race, that white people are better than people of color. That is an idea that I might have thought in, in 1969, Jim, when we were young, that that was an idea that was passing. But one of the saddest things for me is to see that come back in recent years with a vengeance. Okay, Jim, let me see if I can get you to do some speculation here. Why have such organizations found such fertile ground in our American democracy? 
Well, that's a tough one, but but I think it's in part because we have these wonderful ideals in America, the kind of ideals that the League of Women Voters supports and pushes. But they're hard to understand. They're hard to live up to on the street on an operational level. Uh, we disagree. Uh, for example, take the issue of white privilege. I'm not going to insist that everyone agree that white folks have privilege. I think we do. But I would like us all to have a more, more thoughtful conversation about the possibilities that white privilege actually operates in our country and what it means for our ideals. That's a tough thing, it seems today, for Americans to do. Well, thank you very much, Jim Addison, for joining us today on Civic Conversations. And thank you to our listening audience for listening to us today. This is Jim Allison of League Women Voters, Bloomington, Monroe County. The League is a nonpartisan grassroots organization led by citizens that's fought since 1920 to improve our government and engage all citizens in the decisions that impact their lives. Uh, join us in June when we talk about climate change in Indiana with Melissa Widhelm, Purdue University Climate Change Research Center. <laughs>